0: It's time to run the pass. My guest today is Cara Nicoletti. She's a fourth generation butcher. She has Seymour Meats, where they do all sorts of crazy things. We're going to get onto all of that in the show today. But without further ado, welcome Cara Nicoletti. Cara, how are you?
1: I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. By the way, that's a beautiful tree that you have in the back. I know the people on the the show can't see
1: it, but... It's a fiddle leaf. Um it's like so old and it's kind of going nuts, but thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> it's
0: a it's a good-looking tree. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> um you know for for the audience listening in that doesn't know, you can you tell people a little bit about yourself and kind of your background. I know you're if I'm not mistaken a fourth generation butcher.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes, um, I am a fourth generation butcher. Um, also have worked in the restaurant industry, um, started working in restaurants about 17 years ago. I have also published a cookbook, um, which came out in 2015. And I've hosted a couple of shows on Vice Munchies. Um, but most recently, I launched Seymour Meats and Veggies, which is my sausage company.
0: Now, now correct me if I'm wrong, but it's about a year old now?
1: It's about a year old. We launched uh, in February of 2020.
0: Okay, so you're a fourth generation butcher, correct? hmm Yes. And and Seymour's your grandfather? Is that is Seymour's that correct? my
1: grandfather? We we tweaked his name um from S E Y M O U R to S-E-E-M-O-R-E, but it's he's our he's our mascot and our namesake.
0: So I tried some of the sausages recently, by the way. Oh good. Yeah, I thought they were really good. So I think when I initially saw them and I was like, you know, I think I, I tried the beet one, which I honestly yeah. was my favorite one. I'm not sure where it that. ranks in the yeah. in, in the popularity, but the beet one was my favorite. Um, but the chicken noodle soup one was really good. And, you know, the funny thing is, is the chicken noodle soup one, when I tasted I was like, that's chicken noodle soup. Yeah. It tastes, it tastes, it tastes I know. just like chicken noodle soup. I
1: started kind of, I mean, I could give you the whole background, but I started making these sausages like 11 or 12 years ago in butcher shops in Brooklyn, um, kind of as a way to help my customers eat a little bit less meat, but also to get the good meat that we were, I was cutting. I was cutting whole animals. I wanted to stretch it a little bit further and, Um, you know, sort of like the old fashioned trick in the meat industry, the dirty trick is fillers. Um, and I just kind of was thinking like, well, what if those fillers were something really good, like vegetables, um, and turn that whole thing on its head, uh, to get the good meat to more people at a price point that made sense. Um, and the way that it took off was that they were under the guise of kind of like a meal in a casing. So, um, I was making, you know, chicken soup, chicken parm, all that kind of stuff, um, Philly cheesesteak and Seymour is really the scale up of that operation, which I eventually could not keep doing with only my two hands.
0: So I I want to talk a little bit about being a fourth generation butcher. So here's my question. Mm-hmm. If I go back and I talk to you when you're ten years old, <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Was it a butcher?
1: No. Um I I think I wanted to be I wanted to be an English teacher or a writer for as long as I can remember. Um,
0: but you wrote a, you wrote a book.
1: I did. I wrote a cookbook. <laughs> I, I spent a ton of money studying English at NYU. I didn't, couldn't, didn't need to do that. But, um, yeah, I mean, my grandfather was really, he did not want this for any of us. Um, it is on my mother's side. And so my mom has two sisters. So Seymour had three daughters. He did not want, any of them to cut. And I think when I was a kid, I thought, and even when I was a young adult, I thought that it was because we were girls, we were women. Um, But I think the older I got, the more I realized it's just because it's like, it's really hard. It's a really hard industry. It's brutal. It's hard to make money. The margins are tight. Um, And I think he just, he wanted, he imagined more for us. So he was not he was he was not encouraging of it growing up. We worked the cash register. We were not allowed to do any cutting. Um, and when I started doing this about twelve years ago, he was like really not happy at first. But um, he is very very excited about Seymour. I think he's he he didn't like the image of of me cutting for the rest of my life, but this he he really likes. And he's going to be ninety two in in August so
0: wow yeah and he's and he is he still making sausage
1: no not anymore <laughs> but we still we still always like <clears throat> he still won't let anyone man the grill when we're home for barbecues it's still still him he lets me help him but like yeah he's still sharp as attack and he's still he's still the best <laughs>
0: so let's let's talk about your early uh experience working in the shop what was what was that like um were you you said you were just working the cash register but at some point you had to have been exposed to some of the butchery work
1: yeah oh we, we were exposed to it all the time I and mean, we saw it firsthand all the time um my grandpa's like the cutting room we called it the stinky room because it smelled I mean, butcher shops have a smell. Um, We called it the stinky room when we were growing up, and there was sort of like this little glass window on the door, and we would peek in and look at everything. We saw all the bodies of of beef and pork coming in on the rails. Um, They had a a rail system that, you know, the animals would come in through from the trucks. They'd hook them from the trucks and and go into the shop. And um, so we saw all of it, and I, I think it's really interesting as a kid. Like, it was something in some ways it makes you more sensitive to where your food is coming from. But then in some ways it also like, feel like it sort of gave me this mental block of like, okay, well, there's animals and then there's food um, in a way that like some of my peers didn't really have. I never experimented with vegetarianism. Um, even though I, mo- I don't really eat very much meat now, I've never been a full on vegetarian, but yeah, we, we saw everything growing up. Um, and, you know, it it was just kind of a normal part of life. I think my sisters and my cousins, we all went in separate – every single one of them experimented with vegetarianism at some point, except for me, I was always the one that was, like, the most curious about what was going on.
0: So I- – at what point do you step into the butcher stop to to start to start cutting meat and to start experimenting with it? Did you start in in your family's butcher shop or did you go work somewhere else first?
1: No, yeah, I, I never was able to work in my family shop, um, which is a shame. But I think my grandpa sold it on purpose so that we couldn't <laughs> do that. Um, but so I was working in restaurants. I had moved to New York about seventeen years ago to go to school at NYU and I was working in coffee shops and restaurants, um, kind of like to pay my way through school. And I really was very focused on the amount of like waste that I was seeing in food prep, um, because it had been drilled into my head from such a young age that like, you don't waste anything on the animal. Like I remember my great grandpa, Going, He used to go into the cutting room at the end of the day and they have like the scrap buckets at the end of the table. And he would like, you know, he was the sweetest, sweetest man. He wasn't doing it in any mean way, but he would sort of inspect the scrap buckets and say like, you could have used this. You could have used this. You could have gotten more meat off of this. Um, So I was really focused on, I just was noticing a lot of of food waste in the restaurants I was working in, um, even if it was cafes. So I decided I wanted to kind of recommit myself. To butchery um I guess it was about twelve years ago. It was two thousand and nine that's twelve years mm-hmm. ago, right <laughs> um, and yeah I, think I, so. <laughs> yeah, I was um working as a baker at a restaurant in Brooklyn and decided that I wanted to get an apprenticeship to learn how to butcher, and I feel like the whole animal movement was kind of taking off the like farm to table all of that stuff um and i spent like a full day walking around Brooklyn one day, going into all the old shops, asking all the old guys if they would take me on to cut for free in my free time. And they were like, no, I mean, which my grandpa would have said. Yeah.
0: I got, I got, yeah. I got to imagine. What was that like? <laughs> I got they, to imagine these old butcher shops in Brooklyn and you're coming in. And I saying, mean, they yeah, were lovely.
1: Yeah, they were lovely, but they were just like, they didn't even understand really what I was asking. They were like, do you want to work the register? Do you want to, you know, uh, sweep the floor. Uh, and I was like, "No, I want to cut." And they were like, "No, it's not an option." So um I there was a new shop in my neighborhood, The Meat Hook, which had just opened, and I went in there and um Brent the owner was like, "Yeah, come in tomorrow. You can start tomorrow." So I started going uh on my days off from being a baker and then also like before shifts, after shifts because your hours as a baker are so weird. Um and put in, like, a year there for free in my off time doing all kinds of beautiful jobs, like sorting sausage casings and, like, just the worst stuff that nobody wants to do. Um, and then after P- pun in, about... Pun intended,
0: right? <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and then after about a year, they hired me on... um Well, actually, I guess it was more than that. Then I switched over to another restaurant. I was working as a pastry chef. Um The chef there wanted to start getting whole animals. Um, And none of the guys I was working with knew how to do it. And I had been apprenticing at the Meat Hook. So I was like, I know how to do it. So I started being the pastry chef and the butcher. The restaurant's still there. It's called Colony um, with an IE. It's in Brooklyn Heights. And um, was doing their pastry and their butchery, sometimes working the line and was just like completely burnt out. So when the Meat Hook wanted to hire me on full-time in like 2011, I jumped at it and I stayed there for five years um, and then helped open Foster Sundry, which is in Bushwick. Um, it's still there. It's a butcher shop.
0: Isn't it wild? So there there was a, a long period of time where, where chefs in general, you know, they weren't really working with whole animals. Um, and then I would say maybe about the time, correct me if I'm wrong, Fergus Henderson came out. Um, and he started doing, doing it. And then you really started to see it expand across the, uh, really across the world. But it's interesting because a lot of chefs, um, you know, they may have, they may have come up in the industry and having never, having never butchered a whole pig or, you know, fill in the blank type animal. Um, where now, well, you know, I almost feel like we had a little phase where everyone was, everyone was doing it for a while. And then now it's like, okay, only if you were really good at it, you're still doing it because it is such a difficult skill to master.
1: It's so, you know, and I would say in restaurants, it's not even the, I mean, the butchery itself is so hard and so time consuming and labor intensive. Um, but also the utilization in a restaurant is really difficult. Um, I give so, I have so much respect for chefs that are able to do it well. Uh, cause it, it really is so hard. Your customers have to have completely different expectations for what the menu is going to look like, um, and what they're going to be able to order. So. Yeah, I don't know as many people that are doing it. But still, if I go to a restaurant and I see, like, that their butcher steak is a hanger steak, I'm just like, that's such a bummer. Because, like, I love a hanger steak. There's only one hanger steak on the animal. So I know that they just got a box of, like, hundreds of hanger steaks. And that that always bums me out. <laughs> like, at least get something you can chop. What is your favorite cut? I mean, I love a ribeye. Uh, yeah, I love a ribeye cooked, like... Just shy of medium, like one thirty-five. Has to be grass-fed. Took me a long time to adapt to the taste of grass-fed because I was not raised eating it. But now it's like it's got to be
0: aged or not aged.
1: I like a little age. I like okay. like a like a twenty day, twenty twenty-five day dry age. Um, has to be well done though. Like if it's if it's badly done, dry age it can taste not so good, uh, and it gets really like the texture gets funny. Um, but if I'm eating like a cheaper cut, not like a luxury cut, I really love, um, I love a flat iron steak. I love, um, a Merlot steak, which is basically the calf muscle cooked pretty rare. It's delicious. I I don't think Um, I've,
0: I don't think I've ever had a Merlot steak.
1: I think, yeah, I think most people probably put it to grind. It's, it's basically the calf and it's covered by like all of this sinew. And when you peel the sinew away, it's like this little velvety, very lean like no fat at all to it um it's just like really minerally and delicious um but yeah ribeye is always going to be
0: texture wise like what's the texture it's
1: you have to cook it rare or medium rare any more than that and it's going to get pretty tough but at rare it's i mean some other people call it a velvet steak i think that's sometimes Uh how it's sold um so at rare medium rare it's very tender more than that and it kind of gets not so nice
0: Similar to like uh, you know, I'm trying to think. What is it like venison, like backstrap? Yeah. You always cook pretty pretty rare. So sim- yep. similar texture wise to that. The more you cook it, the worse it gets.
1: Exactly, because also it's so lean, it's just going to keep leaching any kind of moisture. Um, but yeah, ribeye is always going to be my it's always going to be my pick if I have my pick.
0: So you know, where did the inspiration come to 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 now uh, you know start your own start your own business um, and then start incorporating all these different flavors of the sausage. Now you got, you know, you have a wide variety. And I noticed that you have, you know, sustainability is also really big. At least, you know, I've read it a couple of times on on the website. Um, Why is sustainability important to you? And, you know, why now?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it always was important to me. I think it just is getting more focus and attention now, which is great. Um, I think, especially with COVID, we really saw firsthand how... (sighs) flimsy our supply chain is, um, the food supply chain in general, but specifically the meat supply chain, um, and how much we depend on, you know, these four giant companies to control all of our meat supply in the U S. Um, I think it just, it, it showed how deeply unsustainable our meat system is, which is something that people who work in meat have known for a long time. Um, what, what, what and- do you mean?
0: Cause I, I don't work in meat.
1: Yeah. Well, so I mean, okay, so basically, if you go into the grocery store, and you see an aisle, say it's the dinner sausage aisle, it's full of tons and tons of brands. um, And you think you have this like illusion of choice, um, that you have all these brands to choose from all these sort of independent, smaller companies. But when you do the research, all those companies are owned by basically four giant companies, Um, Tyson, you know, Purdue. I'm not going to say all of them because I don't want to get killed. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> so, so what we saw was, what we saw was that, you know, one meat plant went down during COVID and suddenly they've taken a full page ad out in the New York Times saying, we, you know, the meat supply chain is broken. And you're thinking to yourself, how could this happen? Because one, one supplier went down and it's like, well, because that one supplier is 30, 25, 30% of all of our meat supply in the US Um and they control the trucking companies, they control the hatcheries, they control the feedlots, they control the processing facilities. So it's just this vertical integration that if one domino falls, everything crumbles. Um, so, but what that means also is like, it's not just diversity in supply chain, it's diversity in like in agriculture what these animals are eating how they're moving um and so i think the breakdown of all of that has made people listen um it's made people think twice about how much meat they're consuming so i am a firm believer in regenerative agriculture i think th- that grazing animals has an incredible power to sequester uh, ta- ta- carbon
0: yeah i was gonna say talk a little bit more about that because maybe a lot of people don't know what that means
1: yeah i mean so i mean the buzzword that you're hearing now is regenerative agriculture which is great i'm so glad people are talking about it um something that i i was learning about years ago when i was at the meat hook um basically grazing animals have the power to almost like res reverse desertification um by enriching soil by grazing and moving and trampling the ground. Um, And when our animals aren't eating grass, when they're not, you know, moving the way that they should, um, being rotated in pasture, if they're just staying in a stall and eating grain, which is taking tons and tons of resources to tons of water and tons of land to grow, um, we're just stripping our soil, creating monocultures and like it's just not it's it's just not sustainable so we are using great humanely raised meat the reason i'm saying to eat less of it is just because it is clear that we can't keep up with the demand um and do it in a responsible way in the US like we've proven that there's no way to keep up with our with our demand in a way that is good for the earth so my thought process was just like You don't have to give up meat entirely, but just eat good meat, eat a little bit less of it. Give the farmers a breath of fresh air to like take some time and catch up. Um, and don't go all in on, you know, one solution or the other, like going all in on plant-based. That's just going to create more monocropping and no soil diversity. So yeah, just diversity across the supply chain is going to help our, our meat supply chain a lot
0: where does seafood fall into that with you
1: i am totally ignorant on seafood i'll be a hundred percent honest with that Uh, like to me they're completely different things my grandpa growing up we had seafood in the shop uh i've never i mean i've cut seafood in restaurants but it's never been like my focus i always um i i depend on the professionals for that
0: (laughs) so there's not there's not gonna be like a a salmon sausage coming soon
1: no and actually (laughs) i was so surprised How many people asked me that? Um, it was not a question that I was anticipating having to answer, but (laughs) I'm not, I'm not going there. I'm not going to do it.
0: I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's a future (laughs) business. I'm, I'm just kidding.
1: Yeah. The thing that's, the thing that's hard for me about seafood is that it's changing all the time in a way that like land grazing animals aren't like one week, one month, one fish will be really Sustainable to eat, and then the next month it's overfished, and so it's it's a lot more alive, um, a lot more moving parts than in land agriculture.
0: no no, correct me if I'm wrong you're are you, you're from Boston, correct? Yes, yeah grew up there
1: I grew up there, my grandpa's shop was originally in the north end of Boston and then later moved to Newton, Massachusetts um, and then I moved to New York seventeen years ago to go to school. I Never left. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I,
0: I've I've only been to Boston once, and I went to the North End. Yeah, and uh, you know, I walked into this small Italian restaurant, and and you know, I just remember the person I was with, like, oh, it's the best Italian food. And I looked at the menu, I was like, it looks it looks pretty basic, like <laughs> I've seen this basic. stuff everywhere. Yeah, uh, but when I had it, it really was the best Italian food I've ever had. I can't, I wish I could remember the name of the place. It was so good.
1: It doesn't even matter, honestly. Like, so I haven't been back in a in a long time to eat, but our little Italy, the North end is still great. And it's funny because like, my name is Cara Nicoletti. My dad is Italian, but my mom's side, the butcher side is all Jewish. So, um, my grandpa's shop was called Siletz. Um, they, their, I think their name when they came over from Ellis Island was like Solutsky or something, but they sort of opened the shop in this very Italian area, um, so they changed their name to kind of blend in a little bit more and they all were kosher they all kept kosher um but they did not cut kosher because they were like we're in an italian neighborhood and god forgives um so they were they were cutting pork all day cutting sort of non-kosher meat all day and then if they wanted meat to eat at night they'd have to go to the kosher shop and spend money on it <laughs> um but yeah it's a great it's still a great neighborhood and his shop is now a restaurant called Neptune Oyster, which is like, I think, one of the best restaurants in Boston. So
0: how does uh, – what, what, what was your favorite spot growing up there in the North End?
1: Oh, God, I don't even remember, honestly. What, what's like,
0: the, there's th- a place there with the cannolis that's, that's oh, famous. There's a line out the door. Mike's Pastries, yes. yeah. <laughs> Mike's Pastries, it's yeah. It's good.
1: It's good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have very fond memories of of the North End. And it's that street, Salem Street, where my grandpa's shop was um, was cobbled, I don't know. I can't remember. I think it still is, but there was like some. I'm gonna get this story wrong. He tells me the story all the time, but like up until like the 60s, cars weren't allowed to go down that road because it was like a historic road or something, and so they would have to get their meat deliveries on a horse and cart, like like into the oh, 60s. Um, yeah, the the. The cart driver's name was Andy, and his horse's name was Stupid. (laughs) That's all I remember. (laughs) (laughs) Easy. Yes. (laughs) Poor horse.
0: (laughs) I know. Um, So you opened up your business during the pandemic. Is that correct? Sure did, yeah. Right at the beginning of it?
1: We launched, uh, I think, two weeks exactly before the entire world shut down. So I'd been... Wanting to make this company happen for you know ten years and then waited uh, until.
0: <laughs> so what what were you thinking when you know you just get your company launched and then all of a sudden everyone's on lockdown?
1: I mean it was it was a nightmare specifically because of the way we watched um, the meat supply chain dissolve. Um, we fared really really well in the pandemic. We were like ninety seven percent on time and full throughout. Uh, and I think that is in part because I, my partner Ariel and I spent really a year, more than a year, um, just being really, really careful about all the partners that we were working with all. And that's like, you know, not just the farmers, but also the people in the production facility, the people that are making like the bands and making our dry ice, just making sure that, that like, cause I, I was raised In my adult life in the meat industry, hearing a lot about animal welfare, but knowing that there was a lot of really messed up stuff in terms of human welfare that was going on. Um, so we worked really hard to like get to know all of our suppliers and it helped us a lot because they were already treating their employees really well and they shut down when they needed to and they gave people time off when they needed to. And we kind of just kept running. So in some ways, I mean, it was really hard because. We weren't able to demo like a normal company. I think we had two demos and they were like wildly successful. And then the world shut down. Um, we weren't able to go to trade shows. Um, we had a beautiful booth built for Expo West and all kinds of meetings and couldn't do it. But we were able to drive trial just because they, people weren't able to get meat, the regular meat that they would usually buy um, in supermarkets. And they were able to get ours. So... That was good, but <laughs> it's not the way I would have.
0: I think what you're doing is so cool. Like the, the sausages, obviously, there's no frame of reference of a similar flavor, right? I don't know anyone else that has a, a beet sausage or a broccoli and cheese. I thought that was no. super cool. And yeah. they're delicious. Thank um, you. I, I, I thought they were super cool. Uh, very delicious. And I was like, yeah, I, I, I definitely would. Uh, I don't know if you're selling them in Austin yet, but if you were selling them in Austin, I'd, I'd, I'd be a regular customer.
1: I hope to soon. I mean, the Whole Foods we're in four regions of Whole Foods. It's like two hundred and five stores, but we're not in that region yet. I can't remember exactly where else in Austin we are, but there's a store locator on our website, and we ship nationwide. Did did you buy them online? Is that how you got them?
0: Uh, no,
1: you sent them to me. We sent them. Okay, yeah. Was <laughs> yeah. <hoping so. laughs> yeah. My bad. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yes, the beet. And so, have you like the beet? Because the beet is. I would say my second favorite. I have a very fond place in my heart for it, but it is definitely our slowest seller because of the color. Um and it's been a huge learning curve for me because like part of the way that I got people interested in my sausages to begin with was that they were like these crazy bright colors because they had all these vegetables in them and then when you take it out to like the mass market, people don't really really, they're not really attracted to that, so.
0: <laughs> so what what is your what is your favorite?
1: I really love the broccoli melt. Um it is based on a Philly roast pork sandwich, so it's got broccolini, pepperoncini, okay, yeah. jack cheese, garlic. Um I think it's phenomenal, but we're, we have a new flavor coming out. It should launch on the website in August and in Whole Foods in September. I can't say what it is yet, but it's a far and away my favorite one that we've ever made. Um And Please, it's spicy, it's not- which... I'm wanting so top,
0: not taco. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be taco.
1: <laughs> it's not what taco flavored, no. But it would go great in a taco.
0: <laughs> oh, good, good, yeah, good. So for um, you know, for people that want to learn more about uh, you know about you and and your product, where can people find out more if they want to learn more?
1: So our website is eat eatseemor dot com. Um, same with our Instagram and. Um, that has tons of information on it. You can also order no matter where you are in the country and we'll ship nationwide. Um, that would be probably the best place. The other, the only other way would be to follow me because it's basically the only thing I talk about. But I would say go straight to the source and follow Seymour.
0: <laughs> and where could they find the book?
1: The book, gosh, it's six years old now. Um, probably still in stores. <laughs> Amazon, it was called Voracious. It was... Um, a literary cookbook. Um, so, you know, a bunch of recipes, 50 recipes based on food scenes and literature.
0: Great. Yeah. Well, Cara, thank you so much for being our guest today. It was, it's nice to see you. Yes. And uh, if, I, if I'm ever in your neck of the woods or you're ever in Austin, we'll, we'll definitely uh, break bread and, and, and have some dinner.
1: Absolutely. Would love that. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you.